This is Misrepresent Behind the Face of Fierce Woman. Hey everyone, welcome back to another fierce episode of Misrepresent Behind the Face of Fierce Woman. I'm your host, Charlene Sayo, and as usual, I'm very happy and excited to share with all of you this episode that's loaded with so much fierceness. My guest for today is Latina feminist health activist Dior Vargas. Now, over the last couple of years, Dior has been busy raising awareness about and advocating for better mental health services for communities of color. Her hard work has paid off. She's not only a sought-after speaker for mental health advocacy, but she's recently been honored at the White House. Dior will be sharing more about this honor later on in the hour. For those who listened to my conversation with last week's guest, Mariachi Flor de Toloache, New York's very first all-female mariachi band, they were just nominated for a Latin Grammy for the Best Ranchero album. This is very, very exciting and fantastic news, and obviously I'm excited for the band, so I'll be rooting for them in November when the Latin Grammys take place. Also in this episode, I caught up with mixed race scholar Sharon H. Chang, who was a guest on Misrepresent last year. Sharon was a featured speaker at Vancouver's recent Hapapalooza Festival. I had a mini interview with Sharon where she spoke about her upcoming book, the new book that she's currently working on, and more, so stay tuned for that. Now coming up, we've got Woman Hurrying History featuring Bell Hooks. It's her birthday today, September 25th, so in honor of the iconic feminist, she's this week's Woman Hurrying History. But before we get to Bell Hooks, and to wrap up this fierce warm welcome, we'll take a Balkan-inspired music break with Black Bear Combo's track, Black Bear Colo.
A moment in history. Her story. Women hurrying history. Feminist thinking teaches us all, especially how to love justice and freedom in ways that foster and affirm life. Bell Hooks is an influential and controversial feminist, theoretician, public intellectual, author, poet, and professor of literature. While an undergrad at Stanford University, Bell Hooks began writing her landmark book, Ain't I Woman? Black Women and Feminism, an intellectual pursuit devoted to black feminist theory. Ain't I Woman is titled after Sojourner Truth's famous speech, which was delivered at the 1851 Ohio Women's Rights Convention. Published in 1981, when she was only 29 years old, Bell Hooks' book examines racism, feminism, racism within the feminist movement, sexism, intersectionality, and the lower status of black women throughout American history and in contemporary popular culture. What impresses me about feminism, unlike other movements for social justice, the left, or black power politics, feminism actually was able to accept a critique made by black women and other women of color that your movement is flawed, that you want to act like gender determines everything. Well, we see the world differently. We see the interdependency of systems. So we can look at how do those systems interlock with one another and not have to feel like we have to cover up the ways that we participate as women. Since the publication of Ain't I Woman, Bell Hooks has written and edited over 40 books on patriarchy, media representation, love, racism, activism, as well as memoirs and volumes of poetry. Her main thesis continues to be on feminism and black feminist theory, and her books, Feminist Theory from Margin to Center, Feminism is for Everybody, Passionate Politics, and We Real Cool, Black Men and Masculinity, are commonly taught in philosophy, black studies, and women and gender studies. I don't think we've had a movement for social justice as powerful and as magical as feminist movement. Feminist movement changed the lives of every single person in this room. It has changed how we work. It has changed how we think. It has changed how we do sex. And yet, we're always told that feminism was a failure. And I tell people, well, if feminism was such a failure, why does the backlash have to be so extreme? Why do people have so much hate? And it's precisely because feminism was an incredible revolution for social justice in our society. In 2001, the highly quoted social critic published All About Love, New Visions, a book about the impossibility of love within patriarchy, power struggles, inequality, and racism. Writing beyond the boundaries of romantic and heteronormative love, Bell Hooks discusses platonic love, love towards your community, parental love, gender roles, commitment, and the radical notion of self-care. I say here, 
If we are to change both the fate of our nation and the collective lot of African Americans, we need to focus first and foremost on self-love and self-determination. We need to have a worldview grounded in the belief that one's life can have value irrespective of your economic status. We need to reaffirm the primacy of community, connectedness, and sharing. In the fall of 2013, Bell Hooks became a resident scholar at the Eugene Lang College at the New School for Liberal Arts in New York. So popular were her public conversations with MSNBC's Melissa Harris-Perry that Bell Hooks returned as a resident scholar two more times throughout 2014. Her conversations included panels with Gloria Steinem, Laverne Cox, Marcy Blackman, Lisa Fisher, and more. The topics explored the protection of black girls, liberating black female bodies, and listening to black female voices. Gloria Jean Watkins was born to a working class family in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Her pen name, Bell Hooks, was adopted from her grandmother, whom the iconic feminist scholar said was known for her snappy and bold tongue, which she greatly admired. Bell Hooks was born on September 25, 1952, and she's this week's Woman Hurrying History. misrepresent behind the face of fierce woman welcome back to misrepresent behind the face of fierce woman you just heard what you doing by monk turner and fasonoma from their album emergency songs we're at the featured interview segment of the show and my guest today is latina feminist and mental health activist dior vargas a couple of years ago, Dior started an online photo project looking at immigrant and people of color communities and mental health. Since the launch of her project, Dior has been touring the country as a sought-after speaker at numerous mental health advocacy conferences and has been honored at Blog Her 15, Experts Among Us Conference, and was a keynote speaker at the Suicide Prevention Week gathering this past Monday at the University of Texas in Austin. 
Most recently, Dior was honored as a champion of change for mental health and disabilities at the White House in commemoration of the 25th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. I spoke with Dior in her home city of New York over the summer, where she shared her own personal struggles with depression and the intersection of mental health, racism, sexism, and more. Hey Dior, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm really uh, excited to have you here on Misrepresent Behind the Face, a fierce woman, to talk about your very important project looking at mental illness and people of color in immigrant communities, and it's a photo project. Yes. So for those who don't know what your project is about, can you um, explain and just give us, let us know what it's all about. Sure. So I've been an activist for quite some time, uh, since around high school, and I've been, you know, working on a lot of things related to different subjects, uh, let's say reproductive rights, uh, body image issues, but just a bunch of domestic violence, a bunch of different things, but um, it wasn't until most recently that I decided that I wanted to focus on mental health because I've been living with depression and anxiety since forever, honestly. So it's just something that affects me every day. And so I thought that I could use my personal experience as a way to open the discussion and talk about these things, uh, especially when it comes to communities of color, because I think that's something that we don't talk about in our communities. It's just very silenced and taboo, and we just don't feel comfortable bringing it up. So while I was uh, thinking about how I could in what format I would present my activism, I thought that I, I started doing some research and I noticed that when it came to articles online, there were lists of historical figures uh, or celebrities who live with mental illness and maybe one of them was of color, but they were overwhelmingly white individuals. And so I felt that that was very alienating uh, to my community and uh, and others that are marginalized and so I thought that I wanted to combat that and kind of change the way that it's represented and so I wanted to start a project where people could submit photos of themselves holding signs saying whatever they felt comfortable uh, writing down but just basically saying that they're a person of color that they live with a mental illness and they could be as explicit about that illness as they wanted and just basically um, coming out from the shadows and you know getting away from the shame that that mental illness and, and the stigma has on on us and just basically everyone uh, gotten a lot of great submissions they're over 60 right now and I remember just getting one and I was like oh my god I really hope you know I get something and and I think it's been really, really great. I've gotten a lot of great feedback. A lot of people actually started expressing their feelings and sharing their stories to family members, to people on social media, and they've gotten a really compassionate and empathetic response from, from everyone. And so I think that that adds to the destigmatization of, of this uh, topic. I'm just, just really happy the way that it's, it's turned out. Thank you for that introduction to your project. Now. I want to talk more about the stigma that people of color face in terms of mental illness. So I guess it's a two-part question. Why do you think as a society as a whole doesn't look at mental health issues within immigrant and people of color communities? And then within people of color communities and immigrant communities, why is there that silencing? Right. Um, I think that as a culture, we're very much... We, we just don't want to talk about certain things. We want to save face or we want to sweep things under the rug and we don't want to, people to know certain things about us, not to air our own dirty laundry. 
And so I think that when it comes to immigrant families or just uh, communities of color in general, I think that we're so worried about, you know, putting food on the table and there's just, it's, mental health is not as prioritized as it should be in our community. There's, you know, the, the black female trope, there's us, you know, mothers of, of color who, you know, are presented as martyrs and it's just, it's a lot of things going on and I guess we just, we just don't feel comfortable sharing that with one another and it's just not a priority as it should be. Now, what are the services that's accessible to communities of color and immigrant communities when it comes to mental health issues? Or are there any you know, services available? Or is there not enough funding? Can you tell us like that aspect? Maybe it'll give us more of a context in terms of the services that's offered or not offered. There are services. However, they're not adequate at all. There, a lot of funding is not, is not put towards mental health. You know, sometimes these services are in places that are not in the vicinity of these individuals. A lot of it is that there's not enough cultural competency when it comes to that. There have been, even um, outside of mental health, a lot of I've heard a lot of people say that when they've expressed, you know, their feelings about their health or anything, a lot of doctors have been disrespectful because there are a lot of cultural circumstances they they don't understand, and so they dismiss it, and it can be very isolating and demeaning towards the patients and so I think there's a lot of mistrust when it comes to the uh, healthcare system and and the mental health care system and so it's just it's just not enough not enough at all and people just don't feel comfortable doing so so in regards to your project the photo project which I think is really phenomenal and it's accessible to many many people what sort of mental illnesses do immigrant communities face and communities of color face? Uh, you know, what are they? Are they significantly different than what white communities would face? I don't know specifically uh, ones that they are most often diagnosed with, but I know for sure that people of color are usually misdiagnosed or more severely diagnosed. And so, you know, I know some people who of color who live with schizophrenia, who live with bipolar disorder, depression. I mean, I think that there's not one that we overwhelmingly face, but I just know that usually when it comes to the diagnosis, we either don't get it because we never go to, most of us get our health through a general practitioner or a primary care doctor, and a lot of the mental health diagnosis doesn't happen there, or we just don't go to those individuals because we prioritize physical illness uh, over mental illness. In terms of your own activism and what you've been also finding out through your project, the mental health issues and um, I suppose illnesses that people of color face, do you feel that it's a social phenomenon or do you think some of them actually have something more organic or is it more socially rooted in terms of their, for example, depression or, their, or um, if they have bipolar symptoms is that something more of a phenomenon a social phenomenon so I mean it, there's a lot of factors when it comes to it there's biological the you know which is can involve you know hereditary conditions and then I really think it's environmental and social societal uh, because there have been tons of articles that have stated that due to consistent racism and alienation and just overall disrespect towards communities of color it adds stress, which adds to mental health conditions. And so 
it's really how people treat us and the constant um, battles that we face day to day that really contribute to our mental health conditions. So there are articles that come out about how racism and even poverty are linked to mental health issues, but it seems like there's not enough. What needs to be done? I mean, or do you feel like society as a whole has accepted that poverty, racism, sexism can contribute to, say, post-traumatic stress disorder and depression? Or do you think the rest of society just kind of like writes it off when it comes to communities of color and mental health? I think that they kind of write it off. They don't in some form they don't view communities of color as necessarily human even in terms of the media representation of you know all these things that are going on in terms of Charleston in terms of Eric Garner and Trayvon Martin they just don't see the humanity in us and that's why they don't when when these things happen and this person's a person of color they automatically view them as a criminal and they don't view the true full humanity of a person but when it's a white person they rush to look at their past and say oh well you know he seemed like such a nice kid and oh well you know what happened and there's a genuine concern for their mental health well-being while when it's a person of color they want to dehumanize that person and discredit them by bringing up past things that may not even be true but it's just a complete dehumanization of people of color and it's the racism it's the poverty it's the sexism it's it's so many complicated and and compounded things that we deal with that contribute to it and it's just it's so so disheartening that being said your project is it going to start addressing those kind of issues because it keeps coming up with the well with the death of Sandy Bland again Supposedly or allegedly she committed suicide. Now we don't really know if that's what happened, but many members of her family and close community say like that was not the case at all. Do you think your project will start to address those kind of issues as well? So uh, a lot of uh, what the project is about is to allow people to write their own narrative and be in control of their own narrative. Uh, a lot of the, the Twitter chats that have been going on with the hashtag if I die in custody, you know, I hate that that even has to be a hashtag like all these other hashtags that have been created but I think that when a project like this comes out and people are allowed to define their experience and say I live with this and, and being open about their experience if there ever comes a time when they're unfortunately you know dealing with police who have no understanding of how to treat anyone especially and more specifically a person of color and someone who lives with a mental illness I think that they have already defined their own narrative and basically said look this is who I am um, and so I wanted to just put the power in the people's hands and let them amplify I wanted to amplify their words and their experiences and let them say what they wanted to say that's fantastic I really like that that you're trying to empower back the community, which I think is such an important process. Now, from your own activism and then through your project, do you think that there's differences that women of color face in terms of mental health issues and also what men of color face? Um, there are differences, not overwhelming differences, but with my unlimited um, scope, I, have, I still have a lot of research to do and I'm coming from a place where I'm just trying to amplify the voices of others and someone who just is 
representing herself as someone who lives with depression and anxiety, and I can only speak from my own experience, but I know that when it comes to the definition of masculinity, there's the idea that you can't be emotional, you can't cry, you can't express yourself, and I think that that can be very stifling uh, towards men, and more specifically men of color. Um, and then in terms of women, you know, there's, again, the, the strong black woman, you know, the martyrdom that's being placed upon them. So that those, those are some differences uh, that, I, that I can speak to. Now, your project has also garnered some attention. You've been attending some different conferences. There's some public awareness in terms of what's going on. How do you feel about that? Do you feel like your project is going to um, the right direction? And what support have you been receiving? Um, I mean, it's been, it's been very, very exciting and exhilarating. And I'm, I've just been so happy about the feedback that I've gotten in the press and attention that it's received. You know, again, like I said before, a lot of people have been able to express themselves to family members and to their colleagues and friends and receive compassionate responses, and I think that's really important. I've also just been interviewed by various outlets on, on my work, and I've been able to speak at, in different venues, and I think that's been really great and a way to open the conversation. And by the time this is aired, this is when I, you know, I can be free to say what I'm going to say. But um, on July 27th, um, the White House is going to honor me as a champion of change for disability advocacy. So, you know, that's kind of like the cherry on the top. I mean, it's, I, I'm so, so happy about that. And I think that it, it's very validating. It shows that all of the work that I've been doing to, you know, open up this conversation and allow people to share their stories. I think it, it just makes it, it was worth it to begin with, but I just think it makes it even, even better. Wow. Congratulations. That's, that's going to be amazing. Thank you. Wow. Wow. I'm stunned. I'm really <laughs> going on from that then. When you started the project and you wanted people to tell their stories, were you scared initially that people wouldn't contribute to their like to your project? Like, how do you feel about it now? Do you think more people will be open to it? So, uh, yeah, I was terrified. I was terrified for myself and for others. Um, you know, it's it t it takes a lot of of courage to share your story and put yourself out there, considering all the stigma that's out there. You know, it could once you put yourself out there, it could be hard keeping or getting a job. It could be hard having relationships with people, romantic or just familial relationships. It just it, there's always the risk where things could just not go the way that you, you had hoped. And even sharing my story, I, it's been really, it's been very. It's been, it's been really awesome, but it was also just filled with worry and anxiety about how people would treat me. Um, but yeah, I was definitely worried about people contributing because it just takes a lot and it's not an easy task. But, uh, you know, I'm just glad people did. I think that it was a space that I think people felt that there was a need for. And so once they saw that and once there were more people contributing, they were like, okay, let's, let's continue to do this. And I hope that there are more people who will contribute. The photo project is ongoing because we are in different stages of the process. Some of us are not totally in recovery and I want to allow people the time, you know, to go at their own pace and say, look, I'm not ready to say this, 
and that's fine. Like, it's okay if you are at a certain part of your recovery or a certain part of your, your situation that you just don't feel ready to do that. And so the project is there for you whenever you want to do it. And, and if you don't ever want to do it, that's fine. But I just wanted to provide a resource for people to see photos of people who look like them and know that they, they're not alone. Now, earlier in our conversation, you talked about the importance of people regaining control and that you wanted them to do that through storytelling and telling their stories. So how important is it for people to have control over a mental illness in their lives? And how does storytelling also help in that? I think storytelling is extremely powerful. And I think that we should all be advocates for ourselves and in this case for our mental health because we should have the right and as consumers versus mental health professionals to say what we need. And I think that when we become advocates and we learn more about ourselves, we can recognize our triggers, certain things that will bring, put us in an episode and find a way not to be in those situations if we can help it. I think that we should be able to be in control of the type of treatment that we receive and you know, if we want to take medication or if we want to use maybe more holistic or more natural ways to, to treat our illness. And so it's important to allow people to, to speak for themselves and to have a say in, in their treatment because only we truly know what you know, is, is best for us. Now you just talked a lot about having holistic solutions or methods to treat mental illness, but we're also living in a society, particularly here in America, where it seems like if there's a diagnosis, the solution would be pills and a lot of drugs. Do you find that that's something that the, the prescription would be drugs or something that's a little bit more harmful you know, to people of color who are suffering from mental health issues? Do you find that there's no say, that they have no say in terms of how they would like to treat their, their illnesses? In terms of medication, I've really gone back and forth on that. There have been times where I didn't want to take it and sometimes where I felt like I needed to. I think that each person should find the treatment that works best for them. I won't uh, say that one is better than the other. It's really up to the person. But sometimes it, doctors will overprescribe or rush to prescribe medication. I'm not 100% for or against it. it. It's just, I just hope that there are more ethical ways to, to treat these illnesses. In terms of what society and how they respond to communities of color and mental health, what would you like to see in society? What changes needs to be made? For this conversation to also be larger and to be more acceptable like you know what would you like to see in schools for example and what you know what what uh, changes do we really need to see for for things to get better i think that more funding is necessary i think that um, mental health services need to be in almost every uh, environment specifically schools i think prevention is key it's important that we start talking about these things as early as possible. I also think that in, in, in jobs, employment, there should, we should have these discussions. You know, there are Weight Watchers programs in, at, at, at jobs, yet there won't be programs for mental health. Like, you know, it's, it's like they care more about how we look versus how we feel. And I think that that's really unfortunate. And I think that if we have these programs in place in schools and 
in, in employment that people would feel more comfortable talking about these things. I think that more people of color should be involved in uh, the mental health uh, care system. Specifically, more should become mental health professionals. I, I don't think there are enough. I think that with the people who are already in this space, there needs to be cultural competency instilled and there should be more training when it comes to that. Um, I mean, there should be training throughout the whole process. I think that once we have that, people will feel less alienated, people will feel more open to coming to these places and receiving treatment because they know that their beliefs and their cultural ideas won't be disrespected or viewed as unimportant. Thank you. Now, lastly, uh, DR, where do you see your project going? Where is it going to go in the next few months? And what do you hope to achieve in the next few years? What would you like to see? So my Kickstarter ends in about 28 hours, <laughs> um, but I'm almost at my goal. So I'm determined no matter whether or not I make the goal to work with a photographer to get these photos taken and have professional um, high resolution ones to use for a print book and use to show at galleries or bookstores. Uh, basically, I want to put these photos into the hands of the people who I want to serve. I want to provide them to organizations. I want to create tangible objects that people can look at and refer to, and hopefully that'll start these conversations and the prioritization of mental health in these communities. Uh, I'm still working on an anthology. I'm still combing through the submissions. There's just so much going on right now. So working on the anthology, also hopefully working on a, a play, a monologues play, which I have so many ideas. <laughs> you know, I mean, I might even look to get a degree. Maybe I could hopefully get involved professionally in, in terms of this, this system and um, contribute what I can. I just want to do everything I can. Uh, I'm still doing work through Crisis Text Line, being a crisis counselor. I'm also a facilitator for a young adult support group. Um, I'm helping out at this um, queer people of color conference later this year. I'm hopefully doing more speaking engagements, finding a way to share my story and just let other people know that they're not alone and that mental, a mental health condition or mental illness is not a death sentence. You can still achieve so much. You can be successful. And I hope that I can be a role model and be someone where people could reach out. You know, you could reach out to me. And if you, I have no problem searching for resources for people because when you're in such a deep state of depression or any other type of mental illness, it's hard to help yourself. And so it's important to know that there are people and allies who are willing to help you. And so I, I want to be someone that people feel they can reach out to. Where can listeners find out more information about yourself and also your project, and how can they contribute? Sure. So I have my website, which is DiorVargas.com. I'm also on Facebook. It's Facebook.com uh, forward slash Mental Health DV, which is my initials. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Dior Vargas. You can email me, Dior.Vargas at gmail.com. But yeah, I, those are pretty much the main places. I also have a Tumblr. Um, I have my own personal Instagram, which you could follow me there, too. You know, I'm... I'm free and available. <laughs> Dior, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm really excited for your project and congratulations on your big prize. And I look forward to the development of your project. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me.
in the lies in the allies' eyes So don't be surprised at the price of the prize Don't be surprised at the price of the prize If we all do nothing, then nothing will be done If you think it's getting bad, it's only just begun If we all do nothing, then nothing will be done And if you think it's getting bad, it's only just begun If we all do nothing, then nothing will be done and if you think it's getting bad, it's only just begun. Welcome back, fierce listeners. You just heard Call to Action by Scottish rapper Tickle. Now, last weekend, Vancouver's Hapapalooza Festival, an annual gathering celebrating mixed race heritage and identity, invited Sharon H. Chang, a Seattle-based mixed race scholar, to facilitate a workshop on raising mixed race children and the mixed race experience. So the what are you question is like one of the defining questions of a mixed race experience. I had a lot of people, who's had that experience? Raise your hand if you're a mixed person. Yeah. Um, you know, to be honest, I have met mixed folk for like, I don't care. I think it's a doorway to have a great conversation about my background and I love it. So that's fair. You know, I, I believe people are experts in their own experience and I, and I acknowledge that. But I think there's a lot, maybe far more people who find it super objectifying. Um, when someone who you don't know, if their entry point into knowing you is, what are you? Explain yourself to me. That's not a super rude way to approach somebody. It wouldn't be like, hi, how are you today? It's a nice day, isn't it? It's like, tell me who you are. Tell me how you were made. Tell me who your parents were, because you know, obviously they had sex, they had you, or whatever, right? <laughs> so inappropriate. It's so rude. It's none of their business, and I find it really offensive. It's a horrible way to come up to somebody, and it's super Last year, Sharon was a guest on Misrepresent, and I had the chance to catch up with her after her workshop at Heartwood Cafe, where we talked about her forthcoming book, Raising Mixed Race, Multiracial Asian Children in a Post-Racial World. Hey Sharon, how's it going? It's good. <laughs> uh, you're here in Vancouver and I'm really happy that you're here. You were just here for the Habapalooza event. Mm-hmm. Talking about your book, how is it? How's it going with this, I guess like kind of mini book tour launch <laughs> slash preview. It's a hybrid of things which I think is... Well, yes! <laughs> it's, it's fitting of what the book is about. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> hybrid, right? Yes. <laughs> Intentionally chosen? <laughs> No, this was really great. Yeah, as like probably you can tell of that I normally am unconventional. So this is an unconventional book premiere where the book hasn't actually dropped. It drops in December, but um, I read from it tonight and we workshopped around it. So I didn't want to just talk at people. I wanted people to engage with the ideas in it um, and just gave them a little sneak look at, at what's in there. And it was a great group. It was awesome. Yeah. People were really into it. Yeah. yeah. What kind of reaction are you expecting? Like you just said that you're surprised that in Canada we're more excited about your book. <laughs> what are you anticipating for American audiences and readers? I just don't know. <laughs> I've had a couple academic reviewers in the U.S. read it who are professors at universities who loved it. So that gives me a good feeling. Um, and well, I guess we'll just have to see. It's a little bit of an unknown. Although I will say, I've been writing for a long time, and I've always written 
in a way that, that centers this subject. And the response that I've gotten to the, that writing over the years has been pretty positive. Yeah. Okay. So that gives me also a good feeling right, for the future. <laughs> well, what was really great to see tonight is that a lot of people came here to ask you questions, to learn about the work that you do, um, the important work that you do, and about your book. But I also found that you were quite engaged, and you were also learning from the audience. So what do you get out from this kind of setting? Oh, hmm. well, you know, and this is the reason why I love interviewing. I'm sure you do, too. I feel like I learn more from... I feel like I learn more from listening to people than I learn from anything else in life. So more than from textbooks, more than from college classes, more than from documentaries, it's just listening to people speak about their lived lives. And so that is true in doing field work and it's also true when I come and do these talks. I don't want to just listen to myself talk. I don't find it that fulfilling. I want to hear what other people have to say. And so that, and that was also the whole point of the book was so that people could scaffold off of it and keep building understanding. So I feel like I'm practicing what I was trying to preach to begin with. Fantastic. Now, do you also feel that, do you feel intimidated that people would look at you like a younger generation of mixed race people, especially young women, would look at you as a role model? Does that scare you? Does that, does that terrify you? Does that inspire you? How do you feel about that? Because now there's, I saw in the audience like there's young women asking you questions about their own their own like journey to figure out where they fit in our society and in the world, um, how they view themselves. How do you feel about that? It's all the things you said. Yes, it's intimidating. It's exhilarating. It's humbling. It's kind of jarring sometimes. Cause in my head, I don't feel like I've I've gone that far. But then people are looking to me like I have answers, and I'm like, really? Okay. But I think. Uh, Ultimately, it's really important because mentorship is like, it just makes the world go round. So if I have younger folk coming up to me and wanting to have conversations that are mutual, then I feel really good about that. Okay. And one last question. You're working on a new book right now, which sounds really, really interesting. <laughs> I'm excited about it. Can you talk a little bit about I this talk a little new bit. book? Yeah. yeah. So it'll be co-authored with sociologists. Joe R. Fagan, who's been theorizing in critical race theory uh, since the 60s. So he's, he's uh, quite the veteran there. But uh, we're looking at Asian American women and gendered racism, the truth about gendered racism. And currently I'm going out in the field and interviewing um, 50 Asian American women around the real scope of the sexism and gendered racism they face. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so will you be coming up to Canada to launch that book? <laughs> if you're involved, I'm sure. <laughs> Sharon, thank you so much. Thank you. And congratulations on the forthcoming book. Thank you again.
Hey everyone, you just heard Real Swing Shet by Menage Quad. I played their track Elephant Supernova last week, so as you can tell, I'm super in love with them. I'll definitely be playing more of their tracks in the very near future. Thank you so much for listening to my conversations with Dior Vargas and Sharon H. Chang, and I hope you all enjoyed the segment on bell hooks. And as you can tell, we're at the end of the show, so thank you so much for listening. For more information about Dior Vargas and her work, please check out her website, diorvargas.com. That's D-I-O-R-V-A-R-G-A-S dot com. For Sharon H. Chang's forthcoming book, Raising Mixed Race, Multiracial Asian Children in a Post-Racial World, please go to multiasianfamilies.blogspot.com. You can listen to past episodes of Misrepresent at misrepresentpodcast.com and make sure to follow me on Twitter at Just Call Me Char. Intro and outro music by Emily Simone. Additional music by Stealing Orchestra and Raphael Genosio. Black Bear Combo, Menage Quad, Monk Turner and Fasinoma, Steve Combs, Tickle, Ketza, and the Arthur Pryor's Band. Fiercest thank yous to my guests, Dior Vargas and Sharon H. Chang, as well as to Elise Cloma, whose talent and generosity made this episode possible. And of course, thank you, fierce listeners and supporters, because without your ears, Misrepresent wouldn't be here for a second season. Don't forget to tune in next week for another fierce episode featuring another fierce woman. This is Misrepresent Behind the Face of Fierce Woman.